0: Sick Boy Podcast is a health and comedy show about what it's like to be sick. Wait, is that right? How can illness be funny? You'd be surprised. Okay. Sick Boy is hosted by me, Brian Stever, and me, Taylor McGilvery, and myself, Jeremy Saunders. Come on in and join us to melt your heart, learn something fascinating, and bust a belly laugh. Trust us, you'll be glad you did. You can find Sick Boy on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your pods. This is a CBC podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Welcome to The Dose. Every province and territory in Canada is trying to slow the exponential spread of COVID-19 with tightened restrictions, limits on social gatherings, business closures that vary depending on where you live. Schools staying open has been the default as we try to avoid the educational and mental health effects of school closures that we saw during the spring. But across Canada... There's a patchwork of inconsistent conclusions on whether or not schools are contributing to the spread of the coronavirus or not, uh, leaving a lot of parents confused. Some provinces have been steadfast in keeping schools open. But this week, the Alberta government sent high school students home after 180 school-based outbreaks. And across the border, New York City's mayor shut down all the schools, sending one million students home. All this leaves us wondering... What do I need to know about schools and the current spike of COVID 19? To help us get some clear, science based answers on that, we have Amy Greer, who's been watching closely COVID 19 at schools. She's the Canada Research Chair in Population Disease Modeling and an Associate Professor in the Department of Population Medicine at the University of Guelph. Hi, Professor Greer. Welcome to the dose.
1: Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Many parents have been thrilled to have their kids back in class, but as numbers creep up, they're getting nervous. Do they have reason to be afraid right now about schools being a safe place for kids?
1: So, you know, what I'll say about that is schools are a strong part of our society and should continue to be a priority for all of us for so many reasons that you already outlined, right? The educational benefit, the social benefit, um, all of those things make it really important for our schools to be open. But, you know, we need to really think about what that means when, as we see kind of rising transmission in our communities, it makes sense to realize that schools are going to kind of be continually bombarded with imported cases. So, So as we see community transmission increasing, we really need to think about how do we reduce the chance that that happens? And also, if it does slip through, how do we reduce the chance that any transmission happens within the school setting?
0: Okay, so just touching on what you've just said, I'm a parent who has received a notice that the school where my kids attend has a case or cases of COVID-19. What's the critical information I need to be getting or need to look for in those notices?
1: So I think there are two different groups, right? So depending on whether or not your child is in a class that has been impacted or whether or not your child is in the school more broadly. So parents of children who are in the class or a common cohort, if you will, with a student who has tested positive, Those classes are being dismissed to do online school, virtual school from home for a period of time uh, in order to reduce the risk of potential secondary transmission because those children may have been exposed to the infectious individual in their classroom. And so we're going to break them up and separate them to prevent any further risk of transmission. If that infected child was not sharing a classroom with your child, then in most cases, those children in the other classes are still uh, attending in-person school. So you're going to kind of get two different pieces of information depending on what your role is uh, in the next step, whether or not your child is going to need to, to be home to, to quarantine, or whether or not your children are gonna continue to go to school and you're being notified just as a piece of information.
0: There are cases and there's outbreaks. How are most schools defining what is an outbreak uh, in a school versus an isolated case?
1: Yeah, so an outbreak is if there are two or more epidemiologically linked cases. So what that means, for instance, the identification of an infected individual in a classroom and then those children are quarantined, so they're sent home, and then let's imagine one of those children who's been exposed in the school setting were to then subsequently test positive. Now we have a second case. Once that happens, that would be declared an outbreak. If we have subsequent cases after that that are associated or linked to those initial couple of cases, then the outbreak count gets a little bit bigger. But that's really how the, the definition is working. So two or more cases.
0: That sounds like it depends on a lot of contact tracing. Uh, how confident should we be that that, ki- that level of contact tracing is taking place so that we're getting the answer that an isolated case is turning into an outbreak?
1: I think the challenge right now is how we attribute cases. For instance, we know that there's been a, a new paper published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal using data from Alberta. And in fact, what they've shown is that one third of the children who had tested positive for COVID-19 had no symptoms that were noted. And so, you know, this idea of contact tracing becomes really challenging if many children are not showing any visible signs of illness. You know, if if your child is not experiencing any sort of symptoms, you know, you would not think to have them tested. So I think the idea of, of attribution or identifying cases becomes really difficult when we know that, that an awful lot of kids are, are going to have no symptoms at all.
0: Yeah. So that kind of makes I, you're making the case that that we might believe in this kind of case tracking a little bit more, have more faith in it if there was more actual testing.
1: Yeah, the question everybody wants to answer is, you know, how common are school outbreaks or or transmission events within school settings. And I think that that is a really challenging question to answer given the data we have right now. Ultimately, what we would really want to be able to do would be to conduct studies where we actually for instance maybe looked at sequencing the virus from multiple, you know, individuals who are part of a cluster to identify you know, are those viral sequences similar such that we would assume that they are all related cases? Or is it the case that, you know, some of those children maybe were infected in their household or in the community? And so being able to link these individuals is really challenging, given the data we have, given children exhibit, you know, mild or even asymptomatic infections. So it gets to be really tricky to figure out what's actually happening and so, you know, many of us have, have suggested that the idea of doing some more targeted data collection, especially using less invasive tests, would help us to better understand what is actually happening within school settings.
0: I want to get into the science in just a moment, but just before we, we depart this question about, you know, based on this, this study that uh, just published in the Canadian Medical Association Journal that a third of kids who uh, have COVID-19 have no symptoms. Given that, how effective are those self-assessment questionnaires that students in many places fill out each morning in which they answer, whether they have a fever or runny nose or, you know, aches and
1: pains? You know, this is really um, a really important question because, you know, school screening is, is really supposed to be our first line of defense to, to reduce the risk of having imported cases show up and spend time within a school setting. The challenge with these school screening tools is that if it turns out that, you know, a third or even maybe more than that of students are asymptomatic, those students are going to pass school screening because they don't have a cough or a fever or a runny nose. And so if those students are still attending school, they represent a risk to all of the other people, you know, within their class, both students and teachers, and, and also within the school. But it's really challenging because there are trade-offs between, you know, we can use really broad approaches to symptom screening. And if we use a really broad approach, we're likely going to identify lots of kids who have runny noses and mild respiratory illness who are going to be sick for a reason that's unrelated to COVID-19. And then we have all of the downstream effects of that, which is kids who are being excluded from school, parents having to take time off work and and may not have paid sick days, um, support for households in that situation. On the flip side, if we take a really narrow approach to that symptom screening, and we use only a very small number of symptoms, then obviously we are we are going to you know result in in children who have unrecognized COVID nineteen potentially entering the school environment. So it seems as though we're we're in this challenging place if we choose too broad of a screening tool. We have the potential to overwhelm testing capacity and and also decrease the willingness of children and parents to report symptoms, which is not what we want to do. We want parents and, and families to be transparent. If we recognize that screening is imperfect, that there are going to be children who attend school who will be infectious, And and it highlights our need to to continue to be really proactive about trying to beef up in-school health and safety measures, you know? And those are the things we've been talking about since the summer, really. Increased hand hygiene, masking, maintaining good physical distance. Many classrooms have so many kids that physical distance is really hard to maintain. So, you know, how do you get around that? Well, you need to reduce class sizes to get the space, improve ventilation, outdoor education, You know, if we know that there's going to be a risk of of infectious kids coming into schools, we really need to focus on in-school health and safety to kind of counteract that.
0: So let's look at it another way. Let's go to the science. Previously, in the last few months, I remember researchers from Australia found that schools were not major drivers of rising cases of COVID-19 in Australia. There have been several new studies very recently What do they tell us about the extent to which school-age kids are spreading COVID-19 in the community?
1: Yeah, you know, I think that there are a lot of parts of this that are really difficult to kind of untangle, if you will. So certainly um, there have been studies published that have said that in, in different types of settings, it was believed that children were not contributing to significant spread. I think that if we are not testing students then that's really, really hard to know for sure. If if a child becomes infected at school and is asymptomatic and then goes home to their family and transmits their infection to a member of their household, for instance, we don't identify that there's an issue until the adult becomes symptomatic. And in those cases, again, attribution of cases is really difficult. So, you know, it might be the case that the child's infection is attributed to household transmission, when maybe it may have been an asymptomatic infection acquired in school. And so, you know, without the right data, you can't rule out these different scenarios to be able to really understand what's happening.
0: So if younger people are more likely to have COVID with no symptoms, uh, then how well do we really know how much COVID is in schools?
1: I think that that's exactly it. I do know that in the U.S. there are a number of studies underway. Those studies have not published data as of yet, but they have been doing kind of repeated sampling of of school children over time using less invasive tests. So, for instance, saliva based screening tests to try to understand these these types of dynamics. And I think those studies will be really helpful.
0: We'll be right back. Queer life in Montreal was wild. Montreal in the 90s was a great time, but it had a dark side.
1: It was not a safe city for gay people back then.
0: But what else was behind a series of deaths in the city?
1: Somebody's killing gay men. And we want to know why.
0: I'm Francis Pouard, and this is The Village, the Montreal Murders. Get early access to episodes at cbc.ca slash listen... Or by subscribing to the CBC True Crime Premium channel on Apple Podcasts. At what point does it become so important to keep kids from infecting vulnerable adults like their grandparents and sometimes their parents that schools should simply be closed?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the question, right? And I think, you know, I feel strongly about public education and feel that schools closing really should be on the lowest end of of things that happen, that that there are things we can do before we get to that point. And, you know, I would argue that when we talk about community transmission increasing, thinking about closing other high-risk settings, indoor settings where people are are spending time without necessarily wearing masks, to me, those are settings that, that I would prefer we focus on and leave schools open as long as, as possible because it's so important for the kids in our communities. I do think that, you know, this idea of, of potential transmission to people who are at higher risk of having a severe illness is a really important one. You know, we know lots of kids, for a variety of reasons, you know, may live in a multi-generational household or may have other types of family arrangements where grandparents or or other high-risk individuals are a part of of their household in terms of, of providing care. And so we really need to think about how we best protect individuals in those sorts of situations, because I think this idea that up to a third of kids or maybe more are fully asymptomatic is really problematic in terms of protecting otherwise vulnerable people.
0: Based on some of the things you've just been talking about, is it fair to say that bars should be closed well before schools are closed.
1: Personally, my priority would be to keep schools open, and so yes, bars um, are certainly lower on my on my list of, of essential services, if you will. <laughs>
0: okay, you are very smooth. I, you know, I know that on on social media, a lot of people have a lot of epidemiologists have, have <laughs> gone crazy over that, and I think rightfully so. But you've you've set us up for the next part of the of the conversation. We've been talking about the science how much are the decisions being made around schools staying open or closed, driven by politics?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a really good question. And to be honest, it's a bit unclear to me. I am not naive enough to think that politicians will make every single decision based exclusively on the science. You know, we provide evidence-based advice. People are going to filter that through a bunch of different lenses when making decisions. But at the same time, I do feel as though there has been a real lack of transparency around how decisions are being made. And that makes me very worried. When we're faced with a pandemic or any sort of, of public health emergency or or any sort of emergency, early on we have to make decisions with less than ideal information. And that's kind of the nature of an emergency. and And early on that's to be expected. But, you know, I would argue that over time... We need to continue to collect more information so that we can communicate that, you know, in a very transparent way to to the people that, that we are, are tasked with protecting and, and to, to supporting.
0: It's hard to be transparent, though, when you make a decision to keep schools open because you don't want to piss <laughs> off parents who may or may not vote for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's true. And I mean, I also think many people are not able to work from home, right? So does that mean we have people having to leave their jobs? Like I think that schools closing raises many, many, many other issues. Schools should be the last thing to close. We really need to work hard to drive community transmission down in all of the other places possible.
0: So then let's get to a specific example that, that's very current and everybody's been talking about. Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City made a pledge to close schools in that city when the test positivity rate reached 3%, when uh, 3% of, of, of the COVID tests uh, turned out to be positive. And he did it. Was that decision based on science or politics? <laughs>
1: I mean, a lot of people have talked about, about per-test positivity. And, and people have, have raised this in, in, in parts of, of Canada, certainly. Per-test positivity right now in Ontario for school-aged children, mm-hmm. it's higher than 3%. And so people have said, here in Ontario, we're at higher than 3%, and yet we're, we're keeping schools opened. Per-test positivity is a great metric, but I don't think it's a metric that should be taken as a single Piece of information. You know, I think it also depends on what you're doing in schools. So if you import a case into a school, the goal is to make sure that we have infection prevention and control in the school that reduces, that makes it really hard for that infection to spread. We're doing a lot of those things. You know, we've been very proactive uh, in schools around masking. You know, this idea of reducing class size is something that that people have been talking about a lot. And as we see increasing community transmission, I think it is going to continue to come up because if we really want to reduce the risk of in-school transmission when those cases show up, having physical distancing as part of our toolbox is an extra layer of protection. And I actually don't think that we are getting good physical distancing in our in our current classrooms. And so so that's something that I I would like to see before we talk about schools closing.
0: And so that's an important point. And there was something else that the New York City mayor said that I think is also part and parcel what you and I've been talking about. He said he'll reopen schools when there's a plan to increase testing inside schools. That sounds a lot more science based.
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, we're kind of flying blind right now, especially if many kids are asymptomatic. And so this idea of doing targeted school testing, and, and we don't have to necessarily do it everywhere, we don't have to necessarily do it for a really long period of time. But just to understand what's actually under the surface that we don't see, then we can better target prevention strategies to reduce risk of transmission that will allow us to keep schools open for as long as possible.
0: Some provinces have talked about extending the upcoming holiday winter breaks. Isn't that just a scheduled school closure?
1: <laughs> so so I think there are a couple of things and I've talked about this extended school break with, with a lot of different people and I'm based at a university and, and this is a conversation even around university and college age students that's happening I think that there are different ways to view that, and I think a lot of it comes down to what families are going to do with that extended break. One idea was you know, you extend the break on the front end. Essentially, if you assume that people are going to have higher risk contact with people outside of their household, regardless of what public health is telling them they should or shouldn't do, if we assume people are going to have some amount of riskier contact, kids in school especially because they're asymptomatic, are are a risk, especially if if some of those people they're going to see are, are more vulnerable to having severe illness. And so this idea of, of extending the breaks so that kids could be out of school, let's say, for two weeks before, so then essentially you could build in a quarantine, a post-school quarantine on the front end, to protect any people who those kids may come in contact with. Likewise, the idea would be, you know, could you then build out a two-week or 14-day period on the other end of things so that kids who've had contact with other people then have kind of gone through a period of having reduced contact before they head back into a school setting. You know, in theory, it makes sense. In practice, the question is, is that what people are actually going to do with a potential four-week break? Or are they going to engage in, in lots of great family time where they see all of their cousins and visit their grandparents mm, and oh go dear. from here and there and everywhere. So, so I mean, I, I think that's the question is, is it going to work the way we think it should?
0: Once again, as you were saying, when you were talking about schools, it's complicated. And, and uh, It's really it, it'll be, complicated. It's really complicated. So for parents who are trying to make the best decisions for their kids and teachers worried about being infected with COVID-19, what's your best bottom line advice on what we know about school transmission at this point in Canada?
1: I think that schools are taking lots of preventive steps. I think we need to really continue to push in-school health and safety measures, which includes reducing class size. But I also think school as an educational environment is our priority. As community transmission increases, schools represent a lot of extra non-household contacts my recommendation would be we really need to be thinking about the sorts of contacts that we're having outside of schools and and really trying to minimize those as much as possible. Cutting back those non-household contacts that are happening outside of school is is, is really helpful for helping to protect the school settings.
0: Well, thank you, Professor Amy Greer, for sharing your insights with us on the dose.
1: Thanks for having me. Stay safe. Thanks, you too.
0: Bye now. That was Amy Greer, Canada Research Chair in Population Disease Modeling and an Associate Professor at the University of Guelph. Here's your dose of smart advice. Most experts believe it's best for kids that schools stay open as much as possible and only close when they begin to play a significant role in the rising number of cases in the community. Right now, it's hard to figure out how much schools staying open contributes to the spread of COVID-19. Professor Greer says we're flying blind. That's because we don't do enough testing of kids in school and because a significant percentage of kids who get COVID have no symptoms. So deciding when schools should close is challenging and may be based more on politics than science. Closing schools as New York City did based on the percentage of positive COVID swabs sounds neat and tidy. But the decision should also be based on other factors like classroom size and whether kids in school wear masks science has not yet given us straightforward guidelines but here are some takeaways when governments close schools suddenly or announce an extended break they should be transparent about their reasons and about the science that went into those decisions if schools are to be kept open then they should be accompanied by other measures to prevent community spread like reducing the size of social gatherings and closing businesses in which people gather in large numbers Once the decision is made to close school to control COVID, the onus is on parents to make sure their kids limit their contacts outside the home. If you have topics you'd like to hear on The Dose or questions you'd like answered, email us at thedose at cbc.ca. You can also tweet me at NightShiftMD or at CBCWhiteCoat using the hashtag TheDoseCBC. You can find The Dose and White Coat Art wherever you get your podcasts. Please do us a favor and rate our shows highly so more people can find us. This edition of The Dose was produced by Donna Dingwall and Nicole Ireland with digital support from Fabiola Carletti. Thanks to Lauda Antonelli for her technical expertise. The Dose wants you to be better informed about your health. But if you're looking for medical advice, see your health care provider. I'm Dr. Brian Goldman. Until your next dose.
1: For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca podcasts.